through a book of scripture. And so this summer we have recently finished um, the letter to the church um, in Philippi, um, Philippians in the New Testament. We've spent the last two weeks looking um, at a couple different topics. And this morning we're going to be starting a brand new book. And so if you have your Bible with you or a smartphone, some device that you'll be looking at the text, um, we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. Um, It's towards the beginning, so you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then in there you'll see this 1 Samuel. Um, If you get to Kings or Chronicles, just go back to the left just a little bit. Um, And so... Listen, we are, we, whenever we start a new book, we want to kind of lay out a little bit of background information. So um, the initial few minutes of the sermon this morning may feel a little bit like um, a, a college lecture. Um, I hope it's, it's not bad, right? But just giving us a little bit of context for what's going on and why this book was compiled. Um, so 1 Samuel um, was compiled in roughly um, probably the 8th century B.C., all right, so we're talking um, like 3,000 years ago, give or take. Um, we don't have a firm date. And what you're going to see on a lot of the facts I'm going to give you here is we don't have a lot of certainty um, about much, but we, we can kind of get a, a whole picture. Um, it's, it, the events in the book are going to cover the 11th and 10th centuries BC. So if you're a history person, this is the early Iron Age, right, where technology is beginning to develop. Um, to give a little bit of sense of what's going on, King David, um, his reign is from roughly 1010 BC to 971 BC. All right, and so we're going to be a little bit prior to that um, in, in, in this time frame. So, roughly, if you want to say, you know, 1100 to 900 BC, kind of gives you a ballpark of when this was, when this, the events were taking place, and then it was compiled after that. Um, even though it's called 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel, we don't know who wrote it. There's no claim on who wrote it. Um, Samuel's death is going to be recorded, and then the, the book will continue, right? So we know Samuel was not the one who put it together, although he probably had some role in the initial portions. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18... Um, there, it, it's very likely that First and Second Samuel were pulled together um, as a compilation, and that there were multiple um, individuals involved. So Second Samuel one verse eighteen says this, um, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it was written in the book of Jashar. Right. So we see this book that we're a little bit unfamiliar with that it was involved. And then if you go to Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, First Chronicles which is back to your right, in verse 29, chapter 29, verse 29, we read this. Um, Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, right? So we, we see an individual named here. They're also written in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Right, And so we know that there's at least three or four um, individuals, three or four books that were compiled and ultimately First and Second Samuel were put together. Um, it's a little bit of a misnomer to say First and Second Samuel. There, it's actually one book. Right? It's, it's one account. It's, it's Samuel. Um, but because it's 55 chapters between the two, 
they found that it was difficult to get 55 chapters on a scroll. And so they divided it so they could have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. But it is one continuous work. Um, so, so what is it? Like, what is First and Second Samuel? Um, ultimately, it's historical narrative, right? It, or you could say it's theological history. It is telling a history that's working chronologically, but they're not concerned with making sure they're hitting on every aspect of what's going on in society and culture because they're telling a specific point, a specific story um, theologically through history, and because of that, um, where we were in Philippians and we were looking at smaller sections of Scripture, we're going to hit bigger sections because we're going to see um, stories and narratives being told. Really, this section, if you go to Joshua through Second Kings, it comprises a section of Scripture removing Ruth called the former prophets, um, where it's covering an era of the, the people of God, the, the Israel, Israelite people entering Canaan. Right until they eventually leave that area, um, and so that that time frame is being covered from Joshua to Second Kings. You're, in this book, we're going to see kind of three main characters, and so even though it's a history book, it's really going to have a lot of literary elements to it and a lot of subplots to it, and it's going to take three primary characters. The first is going to be Samuel, um, the second is going to be Saul, and the third is going to be David. And so uh, Samuel and Saul have roughly half of it combined, and then David will take the other half. And it's going to have these kind of three main characters as it's telling stories and situations and history around them as it's building up to the monarchy, the kingdom being established in Israel. Um, In Mark 2, Jesus quotes from 1 Samuel 21. Right, so like that he knew of Samuel, he references this work um, as he is telling a story about King David. Um, and then in Romans 15, just because I know some of you are thinking, man, why are we going to the Old Testament? Um, sometimes the Old Testament can, can freak us out a little bit. But this is Romans 15:4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And that leads us into some why are we doing 1 Samuel at this point? Like, why are we going here? Um, A couple reasons. One, we believe that all of scripture is profitable. It's all God breathed. It's all God's gift to us. And it is all meant for our edification. It's to exhort and to encourage and to challenge us and to correct us and to rebuke us if necessary. All of it. And I think for many of us, the Old Testament, um, outside of the Psalms, sometimes feels a little bit difficult. Um, And so we tend to avoid it or we're not sure what to do with it because the history is so far removed. But because we believe that all of it is is God-given and God-breathed, we want to interact with it. Um, Scripture is not made up of the same uh, literary genres. So we're leaving Philippians, which was a letter from an individual to a specific church. And now we're going into like history, right? Um, Theological narrative history that was written with a broad spectrum for the people of Israel compiled by multiple people. Um, A a second benefit is going to be as we walk through Samuel, it's going to give you some rich insight into the Psalms. Because many of the Psalms are going to be written by David 
as he's experiencing the events that we're going to read in First and Second Samuel. Right, and so now all of a sudden you have some context to tie those into going, oh my word, like that's why David was crying out here. That's why David was rejoicing here. That's why David is depressed here, right? Because we're going to see those things um, knit together. Another aspect, a reason we're going to do First and Second Samuel. There, it, I love that scripture does not whitewash, right? And it's going to show the absolute ups and downs of human nature. Um, it does not pretend like all the people of God are going to have all their stuff together. Um, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to get ugly. We're going to see the complexity of human nature, the difficulty of human nature. Um, we're going to see how important the good leaders are. And all of you to this day, whether you are in an organization or in a job or even in a family, the significance of good leaders is huge, right? It's not just a, well, he's okay. A, a, a good leader sets, or he or she sets the tone for a business, a family, an organization, and, and the people under them either flourish or they shrivel. And we're going to see this on a, on a national scale here. And then in the midst of the ups and downs of human nature, we're also going to look at the character of God in the midst of this. Um, in this, the people of God are longing for a king. They're demanding a king. They're desirous of a king. Here's the issue. They had a king. It was God. And they are not walking in faithful obedience to him. And yet they're demanding we want a political ruler, a political leader, a king who will lead us. And they are putting their hope falsely in a political system to save them. That that is what's going to rescue them. That that's what will make them okay. Church, if we, we, we have to be honest that that is a place where our nation is right now, right? That if we're not careful that we're looking to put hope in a government situation, whichever end of the spectrum you're, you're on, or anywhere in between, that we cannot too, put too much hope and weight on that because it will surely crumble. Right? That we have a God who is our king. We are citizens of heaven, as Paul says in Philippi. And listen, that does not mean that we get to like shirk responsibilities. Right? We're not saying that we just step out and we're unchecked, um, like checked out in this world. We have a role to play. But that our ultimate authority, our ultimate allegiance and obedience is to the king. And so what's, what's been happening is there has been, if you go to the book of Judges, and you'll see this in 17, 1, or sorry, 17 verse 6, you'll see in 18 verse 1, 19 verse 1, it's just this constant refrain to the book of Judges, and there was no king. And there was no king. And so basically, like, lawlessness is, is kind of rampant. People are just doing what they want. Um, there's very little, there's, there are some judges who are trying to maintain some control, but many of them are suspect. Um, and so Judges ends this way. Verse 25 of chapter 21. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay? So that's, that's the last verse of Judges. That there was no king, right? There was no authority, and so everyone just did what they wanted. 
And so that means some were still following God, but many were not, right? They're just doing what they want. There's no authority. There's no one to hold them in check. And so Judges ends, and that is a very unceremonious end, right? That's a difficult, painful, scary end. And yet, as we think through that last verse, there's a part of that that can feel like it resonates with our current situation in society, right? Where it's like, everyone's just doing whatever they want, right? And so people are, are, they're tearing stuff up, they're angry, they're mad. Other people are mad at the people who are mad, right? And and we just have, we have like, whichever place you want to land politically, there's someone to be mad at, right? And there's someone who's wrong, and it just feels like, man, everything is just burning around us. And so Judges ends with, listen, there was no king, and everyone did what they wanted. And so Ruth was inserted here um, as a means kind of chronologically, but ultimately in, in the original Hebrew Bible, you would have gone from Judges twenty five twenty one into now 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It would have picked up seamlessly. All right, and so that's where I want us to pick up. And so it ends with there was no king; everyone does what they want. And now look at verse one of First Samuel. There was a certain man. Right, it just starts with this phrase, and there was a certain man, and there would have been this hope, this expectation, this anticipation of is is this the guy? Is this going to be our king? Are we starting here with? There was this man, we don't have a king, everyone's doing what they want. We need hope, we need peace, we need a ruler, we need someone to fix this. And First Samuel starts with, there was a certain man. Right, and it just brings this sense of hope and expectation of anticipation. What we're going to find is this is not going to be the king. But I want us to pick up here and read. There was a certain man... Of Ramoth Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkan, the son of Jerohoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Do not, don't get wrapped up in the fact that that sounded like gibberish, okay? Um, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phanes, were priests of the Lord. So listen, when, when every man would do what he wants, this man, year after year, is faithfully leading his family into worship. Verse 4, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, meaning the second wife, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, and as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? All right, so here's the scene, right? We're, we're introduced to a man, a man who is faithfully leading his family into worship. He has two wives. And one of the things that we're going to need to note in especially Old Testament historical narrative is that it is describing what's going on. It's not always prescribing what it is we should do, okay? It is simply telling us, here's what's happened. This is not a, a text to go, well, I need to go get a second wife, 
right? Like, we have clear scripture, right, that tells us, right, that there's one man and one woman, right? But it's simply describing that in this situation, most likely Hannah was the first wife because she was barren, and he wants heirs, he goes and gets a second wife. And now he loves Hannah, it's like his beloved Right? And they're traveling every year. They have a sacrifice, and it's, it's a festive feast time. Right? And you have this woman there with all of her children, and she is mocking and ridiculing Hannah for not having any. And it's supposed to be this festive time, and it describes Hannah, and it says, listen, she wept and couldn't eat. Right? That she's so overcome with grief and mourning and disappointment, and she's being like hurt in this meal, that she just, she just goes to, to worship. She goes to pray because she can't be there. She can't eat. Her husband's like, hey, you know, I'm better than ten sons. Obviously, he wasn't. Um, and verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. That's right. So she makes it through the meal. She doesn't eat. She gets up. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord, and she wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Right. So she is just weeping and crying out desperately to the Lord, saying, Lord, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him right back to you to serve you. And she continued praying before the Lord. Verse 12. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Listen, what was going on in the time of Judges? People were often getting drunk and going in to pray or to worship or to sing. Right? This was a legit issue that you'll see in the book of Judges. Right? So he's thinking, man, it's a feast time. Just get out of here, woman. Like... He's assuming that she is not worshiping, but that she is drunk. And Eli, in verse 14, said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not, reg- do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. She said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Right? So she, the priest tells her, listen, go. Like, right? May the Lord grant your petition. And we see, right, this faith come that she dries her face and she cleans herself up and she goes and she's able to eat. Right? And then they go back to their city. And God gives her a pregnancy, right? She gives birth to a son, Samuel. Verse 21. So this man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice. So we fast forward a year now. And to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go. 
She said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So her husband said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. There they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Right, and so we see now this start. We're, we're probably three, three-ish years in. So chapter one just jumps forward three years. And she's taking this young boy back, right, to leave with Eli and the priest, to be raised, to know, to trust, to fear, to serve the people. Right, that she has asked the Lord and he has answered. She has given this child over. And so that you don't get... Um, Maybe bogged down in this. In chapter 221, indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, right? That that she would eventually have additional children. Um, That God had had opened her womb here for children to come. So, in in this day and age, listen, and to this day, barrenness is is a difficult personal thing is heart-wrenching it affects emotions affects families it brings pain and torment in the days of israel as a nation here what, what had been the promise and the hope was that there would be one who would come to rescue them right that there was one that they were waiting on the messiah the promised one and so what it wasn't simply even, and, and I, I don't mean to say simply, I was like, and personal isn't sufficient. It also was a sense of, am I outside of the covenant? Like, if I can't bear a child, there's no chance that my child will be that. And not that it was a pride situation, but it's like, I, we want to bear children because the Lord is going to rescue us through one of them. And there was this corporate sense of hope and anticipation and promises that we have this like national purpose. And so it was a deep sense of pain, but there was also then shame that came in from a a national perspective. So Hannah is broken over this. But what's going on is we're beginning to see some connection, right? Because Abraham had a wife who he loved, right, who was unable to bear children. Isaac had a wife who he loved who was unable to bear children, right? And the Lord then connects and moves the story forward, right? With children from these women who once could not bear children, right? The, the, the compiler, the author here is saying, listen, I want you to begin to think of Samuel in this line. Like the God is doing something here. In what seems like a, a, a minuscule moment in time, he is pushing his story forward. He's moving things ahead, Verse 19, we see that it says that God remembered, right? The Lord remembered her, and then she she bore. Listen, this is not saying that all of a sudden God is like, oh yeah, I need to do something for Hannah, right? It's not this kind of passive, 
um, silly way that we might remember. What it's saying is that God, when he, when scripture tells us he remembers, so we see this in Genesis 8 verse 1 with Noah, right? That he remembered those on the ark. We see this in Exodus 2, 24, when he remembered his covenant with his people in Egypt who had been slaves now for 450 years. What it's saying is this, is that he is fulfilling, fulfilling. He is acting upon the covenant he has made with his people. And he's about to do something to move the narrative forward. Right, as he rescued those in the ark, as he rescues his people. And now in this, he is bringing forth a son to a woman who has shown great faith, who has prayed. And and Samuel is going to play a key role in the history of Israel. I want us to to look at Hannah. Listen, we we could spend the rest of the sermon um, talking about Hannah. There is no woman in the Old Testament who who is viewed as, as highly as she is, right? Where, I mean, her prayer, um, where her, her character, her dependence upon the Lord, she went to God, right? Like she is being persecuted even in her own home, mocked and humiliated. And yet she goes to God and she makes a big request, a bold request. And I think it's key for us here to think about kids, right? And, and, and how do kids ask of the parents or grandparents or authorities over them? It's usually not polite, right? Like it, it's usually, and, and here's the thing, it's usually based on their judgment of that person's generosity. But like, my kids still don't walk in and go, Father dearest, now that you're done with your conversation... Now that you've hung up the phone, would it behoove you? I would like a lemonade, right? Like, I mean, it's like, like coming in like a banshee, right? Like dirt flying, screaming, like, I need lemonade now. You know, like just, it's just like, and, and you're like, man, I appreciate the fact that you're really confident I'm going to give you what you ask. But this request was not like the most polite, right? Like, and, and so you're working. And so like, listen, I love that my kids ask me for insane things. Like that they just assume that like I have like all the means of resources available to me. Like, um, hey, dad, when are we going to move into the eight story house? Like, we're not like, you know, but but like the, just this assumption of, hey, dad is good and his character is good and he's generous and he's going to he's going to take care of me. Like, I love that. We want to work on some politeness, right? But when we think of prayer, right, do we walk up expecting God to be generous? Like, do we, do we go politely saying, hey, God, you're probably not going to do this anyway, and so I hate to bother you, and so maybe I shouldn't even do it at all, but just in case, on a Hail Mary, mm, please, right? And you're thinking, like, that, that doesn't look like a child approaching his father, child approaches the father trusting that they are good they are generous and they want to say yes and that hannah comes before god right she goes to the almighty the one who can answer the prayer and she just pours out her heart to the point that people think she's drunk before the lord begging him to do what only he can do and open her womb for his glory and for her good And then we see her generosity. We go to 24. 
says, so when she had weaned him, she took him along with her. And some of your translations may say with three bulls. Others are going to say with a three-year-old bull, right? Like um, we're talking 3,000 years. There's, there's some confusion as to what's going on right here. Either way, she is being remarkably generous. <laughs> that she's bringing three times the required sacrifice. Really more than that, right? To say like how grateful she is that God has answered her prayer. That she is pouring forth generosity with wine and with flour and with a bull. And what I want us to note here, talk about the character of God, is that God sees and hears the weak and powerless in society. Hannah had no means to change her situation, so she turned to God Almighty. Listen, the, 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 the consistent narrative of Scripture is this, that God, He sees the broken, the despised, the weak, the powerless. That He calls the church to love the widow and the orphan, those who can't affect their circumstances. We see in Amos that He is angry with His people because they have held down the poor and the downtrodden who are of, of the same nationality and the same religion. We see Him looking at, um, at the people of Israel and rescue, rescuing them out as slaves, saying, no more. Right? That God pulls out who? As disciples. Not famous rich men. Right? But the lower parts of society. It's why Paul will say the gospel is offensive. It shames the wise. Right? Because it brings us low. And it says humility is what we want, not pride. Jesus himself doesn't come in robes in a throne, right? He comes in humility in a, in a manger in Bethlehem, where the people would say, is, does anything good come from Jesus's hometown, right? Like the, the God hears the weak and the powerless and his mighty hand works and moves for their benefit. In salvation, he doesn't go, you are impressive. I need you. He says, you have nothing, and you have no means of making this right, and I want you. And Jesus lives the life you were supposed to live, that I was supposed to live. He dies the death that you and I deserve, and he defeats our enemies to bring us into the family, right, where we are co-heirs with Christ, adopted sons and daughters of the king on no merit, on no right, on no pride of our own, right? That this is the character of God. And so the second wife is treading on dangerous ground, right, to scoff at the lowly, to assume that she has a position and as God has been raised her up, it's not to stomp someone else down, right? We see the husband, right, ministering to her and, and saying, you're loved despite not having children, right? I'm giving you a double portion and I, and, and I love you and I want you to be okay, Right? We see him responding to her sadness and her grief in a healthy way right? where the, where the second wife is lording over her. And so we're going to look real quick here at Hannah's prayer beginning in chapter 2. And so she now is back. She's leaving her son and she is going to begin to pray. And, I, and, and listen, we could miss the, the forest for the trees here. I want you to hear her prayer in light of this now. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will strengthen to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This big, beautiful, bold prayer. She just thanks God and extols his character. And what the, the compilers of Samuel are doing in this prayer are helping us see some of the themes that are going to come out in this book, right? And this is why this is our introduction, right? And so some of the themes we're going to see here are three that God is mighty, right? That he's involved. Second, that he is the reverser of human fortune. In situations, and third, that a king is coming. And so we're going to look at this briefly. You could spend all your time in GC this week just looking at this prayer. Listen, God is mighty. She turned to him because he was faithful and able. And church, I just want you to hear this, that God works in the big moments of life and he works in the little moments of life. That he works with the, the memorable people and he works with those, like Hannah would have been forgotten in history like that without heirs. And now Hannah is celebrated and remembered as a godly, virtuous woman, right? Because God worked and moved in a mighty way in her life, right? For his glory and for her good, And so God works in both the big and the small moments of life, right? With the seemingly forgettable people to move his story forward, right? That he, what you think, man, there are no big moments in my life. God is working in the little moments. He is in control and he is mighty and involved. He knows you. He listens and hears you. And you can go to God as Hannah went to God with big requests asking of him because he's good. And you're his children. Second, moving through these quickly. He is the reverser of fortunes. Look at verse, starting in verse 4. So he says, like, look, the bowels of the mighty, they're broken. But the feeble have strength. Those who are full now have to hire themselves out just to eat. Those who are hungry have no more hunger. The barren now have seven kids. Those who have many is forlorn. She's sad. It's just saying, listen, God, when he intervenes, things just change. Right? And those who are arrogant and prideful will often find themselves brought low. And those who are humble and needy are going to find themselves being brought up, transformed and changed by God. 
church this morning, whether before we take this and make this, okay, God, I'm poor. Give me some money. He has done this for us spiritually. That we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. That we were enemies of the cross and enemies of God. And then in our inability to find salvation, to get back to God, He rescues us. Right? This is Ephesians 2. That we were dead in our sins, but by the grace of God, right, we're rescued. This is Second Corinthians 5 saying that, right, we are no longer marked by sin, but we are been transformed. We are a new creation in Christ due to His mighty hand. He has reversed our fortune for those in the room this morning who know Jesus. That you are no longer damned. You're no longer an enemy opposed to Him. You're no longer, right, in fear of what comes after death. That you are now an adopted son, adopted daughter of the king in the family. His, your fortunes have been reversed. So God is doing this in the world and he's doing it spiritually as well. We're going to see more of this. We're just kind of laying a foundation. And then the final one is this, that there is a king coming. Right? Telling us of, of, of Saul and of David, right? Of which Jesus will come from David's line. But also a king coming Right, the king we already had, which was God. We just left Philippians in the last couple weeks. And in Philippians chapter 2, we see this. Verse 8. That Jesus was obedient. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's saying there's a king coming and everyone's going to see him and every knee is going to bow and everyone's going to give him worship. And ultimately, it's Jesus. So like we can go to 1 Samuel and say, man, what's what's happening? Jesus is our king. And we want to give him allegiance in this life and in the life to come. We want to trust him that he is, in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That Jesus is exalted by the Father. right? Because he is the faithful king who has rescued us. So this morning, the band's going to come back up. There'll be some men and women in the back if you need someone to talk to, to pray with. This week, would we respond by saying we want to go to him because he hears us. Like that we can take our request to the mighty hand of God because he knows you. You can cast your anxieties upon him. That he, would you worship him because he has reversed your spiritual condition? Would you pray on behalf of someone this morning whose spiritual condition needs to be reversed? Right? That God would rescue and save. Would we trust that the Lord has something for us in Samuel? And he's going to speak through his word. In church, would we be a people that would obey our king? Right? We're going to see that the nation of Israel wasn't. They were not obeying God the Father. They were crying out for lesser things. Would we trust and rest in our king? I'm excited to to walk through Samuel with you. 
um, to see what the Lord will do. So let's pray. We'll enter a time of worship through song. And if you need um, someone to visit with, they'll be in the back. Father, thank you that we can look at a book like Samuel that is 3,000-year-old history and it not be dry, that it not be rigid, that it not be far removed from us. God, that it is alive because you are alive and you're working in our midst. God, would you, would you give us a faith like Hannah this week to bring our request to you, um, trusting that you are good and generous, that you love us and want us to bring those requests. God, would we find ourselves um, in, in allegiance and obedience to you and that our hope would be in you and not in the things of this world. Father, stir in us. Give us eyes to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.